Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. We are partway through this wonderful book of Alba Amamillo's The Dark Side of the Mind. And last week, Reverend Sharon sort of kicked this off with the idea that our thinking is, how do I want to put it? Complicated. (laughs) One of the things that she talked about last week is the idea that only about 15% of the thinking that goes on our mind is actually conscious. The other 85% tends to be unconscious. And I'm afraid I'm going to start out today with more bad news because it isn't just that a lot of our thinking is unconscious. There are a couple other factors that tend to make um, our lives more difficult through our own thinking. The first one uh, Ms. Alamilio uh, talks about is being the negativity bias. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about the negativity bias. Simply stated, here's the way she puts it. If the mind is left to its own devices, it will choose to focus on something negative rather than something positive. Now, I know a lot of us have been in New Thought for quite a while, and so that may not be universally true for the folks here in this room. But if you think about it, I think you'll probably agree that if someone is asked, well, how their day went, if someone is asked how their vacation went, if someone was asked how things are going, they will always come up with something negative that they've been focusing on, almost Always. It can be the one negative thing that happened in their day, and yet that's, you ask how it went, well, there was this thing that happened, right? Uh, And so it's not uncommon. Uh, You know, welcome to the club. Uh, And we're actually designed that way, and I don't even think that God made a mistake. So let me explain. Um, So so God, I think, first of all, made us so that we would be safe, and second, made us so that we could be happy, Now, if you think about this, this probably was a good plan. What if it was happiness first and safety second, right? The first time you would see a beautiful sunset at the beach, you'd walk right off the cliff, (laughs) right? So so I don't think it's a bad idea. I, I mean, you know, bless God for knowing how things probably work out to our advantage. But I will say that it complicates things when we actually are looking for and highlighting the negativity that happens in our lives. Even though that might tend to keep us safe, things are different now than they used to be a few thousand years ago. Just things that we don't recognize don't necessarily present a danger. Uh, has everyone been to like a state fair or one of those amusement parks where they have kind of the arcades and stuff? Does anyone remember the Papa Mole? All right, the, or, or sometimes it's called the whack-a-mole, yes, okay. Uh, and, and I saw one recently that they use squirrels instead of moles. Anyway, the idea of it, it it's kind of a board and you get a, a plastic mallet and, and little uh, animated figures pop up through the holes and your job, each time you whack one down, you get a score, you know? So the, the more of the things that stand out in your life that you focus on, the idea is the bigger score you get. Well, the trouble is with the negativity bias, what you're doing is you're racking up a really great score, rewarding yourselves for having terrible days, <laughs> rewarding yourselves for having a, you know, a messy life, rewarding yourselves for being in arguments. All of those things that we tend to dwell on, the things that pop up in our life, those are the things that don't look like other things, 
And so we focus all our attention on them, and we tend to get stuck on them. Okay, there's another thing that she talks about in the book that is equally dangerous for us. Not only do we have a negativity bias, but we also have the tendency to categorize things. So when things, again, pop up that are unlike something else, first of all, we notice it, and second of all, we tend to box it up with some other negative thing that has happened. So, so uh, and, and I'll use my example of the man running through your neighborhood at night. So you're sitting out on your front porch and a man simply runs through your neighborhood. Now, does the first thought that comes into your mind, oh, I bet he's late for a birthday party? <laughs> no. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, where we tend to go with that is, oh my gosh, I wonder if there was a robbery. I wonder if he's up to something. I wonder, you know, suddenly the neighborhood watch in you comes out simply because you saw a man run through the neighborhood. Well, that's doing two things. It certainly illustrates the, uh, the idea of the negativity bias, but it tends to also then get classified in men who run through the night in my neighborhood are bad. We tend to collectively say someone who would do that, right? Do you see how much trouble we get into through this? This is a, this is a huge, this is where racism is born. This is where, where the idea of anyone who looks different or behaves different, there's something wrong with them. And so not only is the negativity bias and our tendency to categorize people, not only is it harmful to maybe individuals we're reacting to, this is a huge part of why society sometimes is almost non-functional around certain issues. It's because we have categorized everyone into little niches of us's and thems's, of, of, sa of safe people and unsafe people, so that we can just look at someone and based on, I don't know how they're dressed or the color of their skin or, or whatever it is, suddenly, well, you're not a safe person. This, of course, is the very definition of craziness. So how do we deal with this? How can we embark upon making a better, uh, a better go of things? Well, well, first of all, I think just recognizing that the negativity bias exists is helpful. So next time you find, especially when you're in a new situation or something happens that's different or, or you notice something going on that's unexpected, first of all, ask yourself, is it really negative? Or am I just experiencing the negativity bias? And a lot of times, right there, you will find some solace in this. You'll immediately go, oh, wait a minute, this is just something I'm unfamiliar with. Just because this person, you know, is dressed in an outlandish way, just because this person, you know, is behaving differently or whatever, it doesn't mean that they're crazy, it doesn't mean, you know, that the world's coming to it, right? They're just different. So let us check that out. <laughs> My thought is if we take the extra step to get more information, then if we are going to put someone in a category, at least it might have a ghost of a chance of being a good category. It might even be a category of people I like or new experiences that went well. It could be one of those categories if we take the actual time to interact with that other person, to, to do some um, thought processes around that particular situation that's a little different. We really owe it not only to the world, but ourselves. Now think of what happens 
after a lifetime of the negativity bias and group classifications going on, one by one, anything that is different is perceived over time with a slight negative tinge. It's boxed in with other things that are seen in a negative tinge. And therefore, we don't participate in it. We don't do that activity again. We don't meet kinds of people like that anymore. I remember uh, uh, I had a... Um, I used to do years ago, I used to do uh, uh, child care for, well, child care, gosh, they were teenage boys mostly. It was for through the juvenile, uh, 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 justice juvenile system. And I had some young men that would come to me that would be afraid of dogs, afraid of white people, afraid of supermarkets. So it's like you name it, they had had a few experiences. And because of that negativity bias, then suddenly anyone who looked like that, any experience that felt like that, it would be like, no. I'm not going there. And when you build that up over a lifetime, your life, the scope of it, what happens? It gets smaller and narrower and more the same and more the same. And I gotta tell you, the sameness isn't about joy and freedom. The sameness becomes a little prison that you're in. All right, so how do we overcome this? I'm gonna start off with a joke and we'll, we'll try to change the whole tone here a little bit. Uh, and it's the world's longest joke, I apologize. But, uh, but hopefully you'll at least like it, even if it's too long. So a woman is at her hairdresser getting her hair styled for a trip to Rome, Italy. She mentions the trip and her hairdresser says, Rome? Why would anyone wanna to go to Rome? It's crowded and it's dirty. You're crazy to go to Rome. But how are you getting there? Oh, I'm flying on United. We got a great set of tickets. United, exclaimed the hairdresser. That's a terrible airline. Their planes are old. They're always late. But where are you staying in Rome? Well, we're going to be in an exclusive little place right on the Tiber River called Trieste. Oh, don't go any further. I know that place. Everyone thinks it's one of those sweet little boutique hotels. It's actually awful. We're gonna see the Vatican and I'm really hoping we'll get to see the Pope, she says. That's rich, laughed the hairdresser. You and a million other people are always wanting to see the Pope. Good luck on this lousy trip of yours. Well, yeah, you might be shopping for another hairdresser, I agree. Uh, six weeks later, the woman comes in again for, uh, for a trim. The hairdresser asks her about her trip to Rome. Oh, it was wonderful, she says. Not only were we in time, uh, not only was the plane on time and in one of United's brand new planes, but it was overbooked. They put us in first class and the hotel was outstanding. They had uh, undergone a $5 million renovation. It was a jewel, one of the finest hotels in the city. Well, muttered the hairdresser, I know you didn't get to see the Pope. Well, you know, actually, said the woman, we weren't even scheduled. He wasn't taking, a, taking an audience that day, but as we went on the tour of the Vatican, one of the Swiss guards tapped me on the shoulder. He explained that the Pope occasionally likes to meet some of the visitors one-on-one. -on -one. Sure enough, five minutes later, the Pope walks through the door, shakes my hand, I knelt down. The Pope actually spoke a few words right to me. The hairdresser, of course, is spellbound. What did he say? Not having a very good hair day, are we? <laughs> All right, so the joke. There are things in life we can control, and there are things in life that we can't control. 
One of the things that we can't control, and yet I suspect that some of us spend a fair amount of time trying to control it, is what pops out of other people's mouths. There will be people in this life, even people you like, even people that supposedly love you and care for you and want the best for you, that will say things that are not kind, that are not true, that are not helpful, that will not further your own, own desires of moving forward in life. That is simply something that is out of your control. And in fact, the more you try to control that, the more you try to change someone else to be kinder or more loving or whatever, it's universally seen as interference, it's universally seen as a negative thing on your part, it will not happen. What is in our control? What is in our control is what we think about and say about our own lives. And here, the more that we take that control, the more that we have dominion over our own thoughts, and in particular, our thoughts about ourselves, about our own lives, about how we view ourselves, how we view the world, in particular about that, we have the power to make a dramatic change in our own lives, and therefore, a dramatic change in the world in general. And in the book, Alamillo talks in particular about making I am statements. And I want to spend a moment uh, bringing this back into the science of mind. Uh, I looked up uh, the I am principle in the New Thought Dictionary. This was published in uh, 1942. It was a collaborative uh, effort. Uh, Ernest Holmes was one of the writers in it. And here is how it defines the I am. The I am is both individual, universal, and creative. Individually, it means the life principle of creativity within us. Universally, it means the thing itself, or God. In the universal, it is God, the Spirit Almighty, that created everything using the I Am principle. In the individual, it is God, the living Spirit, individualized with our own creativity. And so when we make I am statements, in particular, I'm loving, I'm joyous, I'm happy, I'm, uh, I'm smart, I'm funny, uh, it's easy for me to talk to other people, I'm a good communicator, um, I'm, a, I'm a good parent, I'm a good husband. When we use I am statements, we're using the full creative power of God itself and we know what that power is like. That's the, that's the big bang, you know. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and it just, you know, that's how the universe starts. That is the power I'm talking about. That I am is what created everything. And when we use I am statements, now think a minute, because you're going to start getting a little scared here. What are the average I am statements that we make about ourselves in and out of every day. You see that negativity bias is at work in our own minds and our own hearts. And so many of us go through a day saying things like, gosh, Larry, you were awfully stupid to do that. Why were you doing, don't you have a brain in your mind, right? Don't we make, you know, or, or we'll have a, a, some words of anger with someone and we'll say, I'm, I'm a terrible communicator. I'm no good at relationship things. I, I love other people, but I'm not very lovable, obviously, or this wouldn't have happened. Most of our self-talk is peppered throughout the day with really dangerous, and I use the word dangerous 
I am statements. Because when we say I am a thing, we're using God's power itself to make it true. And when we say it often enough, it will be true. It will be just as true as the the sky is blue or gray, maybe, in Oregon. (laughs) And so one of the things, one of the ways that we can get out of this trouble in our lives and really begin experiencing the happiness and not just the safety that I talked about earlier is being somewhat vigilant about our I am statements. And I'm going to uh, explain a methodology uh, of how to do this. It's, it's out of the book, but you know, it's also my own experience, and it's puppy training. So over the last two years, we've had uh, two puppies, both coming in at like nine weeks old. And of course, one of the things you're really interested in at first is having the puppy go outside and go to the bathroom. Well, first of all, you need to know until they're about maybe 12 weeks old, they don't actually have the mental capacity in their brain to to put those ideas together. And so for the first few weeks, actually the job of puppy training is Larry training. The first few weeks are about, okay, I fed her about 20 minutes ago. She has that kind of wiggly look. She's, oh, there it went. (laughs) And so for the first few weeks, you actually train yourself to know. And you can. If you pay attention, if you're at home enough when you're training a puppy, which ideally you are, you will be able to anticipate after just a few days of when it's time. Uh, I mean, in fact, the, the, the breeder of our dog said, well, if nothing else, get your stopwatch out. You know, you just fed her, <laughs> set it for 20 minutes, right? When they're really little, because it works like pretty routinely. And then you can see the signs and see the signals. Okay, the next thing you do though, once their brain is developed enough, you want them to go outside and it's appropriate to train them. How do you think they used to do this in the old days? In the old days, The dog pees on the floor, you take a newspaper, and in the worst case scenario, you whap the dog with it. In the best case scenario, you whap next to the dog and make a a big loud noise. And then, of course, they've already done it, but you pick them up and you take them outside, and the dog's kind of like going, what just happened? Why why are we out here? And uh, what was the newspaper deal? And I thought I thought you liked me. That was kind of scary. And there's no association of course between the pee indoors and well anyway, you get the idea. Uh, and, and worse yet, you'd like rub their nose in it or something. Like, how is that helpful? <laughs> so, so anyway, the, the new techniques are, are foolproof. And you can house train a dog uh, normally in three weeks or less. So the way it works is, you, first of all, you've spent that time when you were with the puppy before it actually could learn how to be housebroken. So you know the signs. And so when the signs are coming, or, or in 20 minutes, or however you want to gauge that, you take the puppy outside, uh, and you wait. And when the puppy goes, oh my gosh, right? It's the second coming. There are biscuits, there's love, there's joy, right? You do the happy dance. It's like this is a momentous occasion. The puppy is golden, right? And you do that for a very short period of time, and the dog will become associated with those events. You can even teach it to ring a bell if, uh, if the signs aren't quite clear about when the dog's going to the door and once out. You can hang a loop. Uh, all you have to do is, is put the dog's paw up on the bell, ring the bell before you take it outside. Again, within three weeks, you will have a dog that will get up, go over, ring a bell, have you open the door, go outside and pee. 
And it is just as easy to train you and to train me. So first of all, we need to be aware of the signs. When are you having negative thinking? When do you have to go, and in a bad way, in your own head, right? It's potty training your head. So when are you having thoughts that are negative about yourself and others? When are you imagining that you're stupid or or lazy or whatever the negative self-talk you have? First of all, you have to be aware of it. And where do we go with that? Most of us, if we haven't been trained, then we're negative about our own thinking, right? Gosh darn it, I just caught myself being negative again. What a stupid guy I am. (gasps) Oh wait, I just caught myself being negative about that, right? So no, no. Instead, just like with the puppy, we want to interrupt the negative behavior. So we simply tell ourselves, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Instead, and we replace it with a new thought, a new piece of training. And so obviously we want to have decent self-esteem. We want to know that our voices matter. We want to know that we stand for something good. We want to know that we're loved and lovable. We want to know that we're creative. These are the kinds of things that we use I am statements to train ourselves. Now does this happen overnight? You see, we would give a puppy probably weeks and weeks and weeks. We need to be able to allow to give ourselves a little time at this too. You will have slip-ups. You will have accidents, as we say, in the puppy training vernacular, and that's okay. So you find that you've been beating yourself up over something. No big deal. Just put an end to it when you notice, and then take some affirmations that would be more like the way you would choose to think of yourself. No, I'm smart. I'm creative. I absolutely have the capability of working through this issue, whatever it is. In fact, I wrote down just a a short little sample here. Let's say you had a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your coworker, your boss, whatever, and you're feeling kind of... um, kind of useless in a way because you you recognize that you participated fully on some of the harsh words were you maybe you hung up on the friend on the telephone often someone would therefore say well i'm stupid i'm not a good communicator right we would go down those you know i never can get along well with that person i'm not very good at this instead we want to take statements like This relationship is worth the effort of good communication. I'm a good communicator. This person is important even as I am important. Our voices can be heard. In the universe, I have a voice worth listening to. I easily get along with everyone and everyone. I make mistakes, but I learn from them and easily fix them. Do you see how we can take something that would perhaps spiral down into a pity party and instead end up on the other side of it feeling capable and lovable and useful. And what do the I am statements do? Again, this is the full creative power of God itself. If you claim yourself to be stupid often enough, you will be stupid. And if you claim often enough to yourself that you're capable and lovable, that you're smart, you will be those things as well. It's just, you know, the puppy doesn't even have to know how the system works, right? You don't either. 
We'll, we'll just leave that up to a God thing. We'll leave that up to just something that the world works this way. When you praise yourself, when you claim that goodness and those capabilities of love and light, of joy and peace in your heart and for yourself, I don't care how it happens, but what I will guarantee you in the same way that in a few weeks the puppy will be going outside, your lives will be happier. Your lives will be happier. We will begin replacing that negativity bias. We'll be, begin replacing those categorizations that aren't really useful. We'll be replacing them with I am statements of capability, of love, of peace, and of joy. And we'll still be safe. That, that mechanism back in that limbic part of our brain that, that is watching for the, you know, the tiger to rush. I mean, don't worry. We're not going to train ourselves not to be safe anymore. What we will train ourselves is to be happy. So I want to leave you with a bit of homework today. Your homework, I think, is an easy one. Simply pick an area in your life where you would like to see some improvement and begin the process of watching your thoughts. So, so we can, of course, uh, make a change unless we're aware of times when we're doing that negative self-talk, when we're, when we're categorizing things, when we've had, got that negativity bias. So pick an area in your life where you'd like to see improvement. Begin noticing your self-talk. And then when you catch yourself peeing inside the house again, <laughs> your ultimate house, right? When you catch yourselves, replace it, reform it come up with something new and more positive and equally true about yourself. And if you can use I am statements, even better, you have the full force of God itself, of the universe itself, working on your side. I'm gonna close with a, a quote um, um, from Alamillo here. This is how she ends chapter seven. She says, realize that the thoughts passing through your head are often random and tend to lean towards the negative side. When you find that little voice saying nasty things to yourself, you have to redirect it. It has to be a conscious effort because we are naturally wired to focus on the flaws, the negativity, and our own mistakes. If you learned to walk, if you learned to talk, if you can use silverware and brush your teeth, if you can ride a bike and drive a car, you can also train your own mind to say nice things about yourself and about the world. It will take time. You will slip up every now and then. But once you train that little voice not to fill yourself with doubts and guilt, your life will become much more peaceful, much more happy. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence, one, one goodness of life. I, I call this thing God, but whether you call it the universe, whether you call it life itself, it really doesn't matter. It simply is all that there is. And I know that means me. It has to. So God's love is my love. God's power is my power. That, that great I am translates down to my own personal I am. And on this day, I claim I am loved. I am loving, I am joyous, I am delightful, I am peaceful, I am joy. I claim all of the things and I claim for myself all of the, the, the characteristics that I wish to be, that I wish to receive in this universe, knowing that it is powerful, knowing that it is irresistible, knowing that it shall be mine.
And as this is true for me, as this process of, of claiming our good is true for me, it is true for each person who can hear my voice. It is true for each person in this room, in, on the planet in general, as we set our minds to embrace the good, there will be more good. As we set our minds to put aside self-doubt and recrimination and instead recognize ourselves as love, as joy, as peace, as we do these things, the universe response. For this, I am grateful. I'm grateful for the, the hearts and the hands, the minds of the people in this room and beyond. Grateful for life. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.